First, a warning. In this episode, we discuss treatment of enslaved people that includes violence, family separation, child abuse, and domestic violence. Harriet Tubman did not live in her own intellectual world, pure and safe. We cannot blame the many enslaved people who didn't do what she did. They were beaten down over decades and forced to do just what they could to survive. Enslavers used constant dehumanization to keep people in their place, fearful of what might happen to them or their loved ones. Harriet was an exception. Her bravery and moral leadership does not make others into cowards. I believe she spent much of her life preparing for those moments, reflecting, fighting, hardening herself, listening to God, so when the time came, she acted with certainty and immediacy. Her acts of moral bravery became a part of her every day as she struggled to free her family and friends. That struggle would soon extend to perfect strangers and then the entire system of slavery. This makes her a revolutionary. She wasn't concerned about moral theory. She didn't take the time to consider what a theologian might say or how history might remember her. She didn't take action in order to build a moral resume. She knew that until all of us are free, none of us is free. So despite her own newfound freedom, she kept going. It's the person who lives with privilege, with security, who shrinks away from difficult actions in order to stay morally pure, who stays true to theories and principles and moral laws but out of the complexity of the arena, who lacks the courage or the resolve to take action. The morally pure who have never lied or never broken the rules are like those who are proud to have never gotten their feet wet despite witnessing many drownings. For Harriet, working in the field meant living within a system that forced her to do things that the rest of us have never had to consider. She broke laws. She resorted to violence. She was willing to start a rebellion. And this meant that she had to sometimes work with the system that oppressed her. How could she do that? We live in a time when we question authority and have doubts in our institutions often justifiably so. People have left churches that have caused pain. Some abandon traditional political parties and call for new ones. Many don't trust the media. Membership in voluntary associations has declined. So many of us are afraid to commit to any loyalties because we're afraid of being betrayed, hurt by past injustices, or we see fault in some of the ideas that these institutions uphold. So we may retreat to ideas, to principles, to ideology, or cynicism. Harriet Tubman had every reason to give up on a country that enslaved her, to give up on a religion that was used to condone enslavement. But she didn't. She didn't not because of blind loyalty, but because she refused to get wrapped up in ideological arguments when there was work to be done. We will see that there is an immediacy to Harriet's reaction to injustice. There isn't time for excessive thought or navel-gazing. When she sees something that divides us, when she senses a rift in our community, she acts. In this episode, we will see how Harriet Tubman moved from freeing herself to freeing family and close friends 
and eventually to fighting for strangers and the nameless millions who had and would suffer under slavery. We will see that her goal wasn't just her own freedom, though it had to start there. We will see courage and sacrifice and a willingness to take even more risks virtually everywhere she goes, and an inability to stand by and do nothing. I'm Eric Bowman, and this is The Virtue Field. The Underground Railroad initially brought Harriet to Philadelphia, but the final destination was always Canada, where slavery was illegal. The province of Ontario ended slavery in the 1793 Act Against Slavery, which remained in force until Great Britain abolished slavery in the entire Commonwealth in 1833. Harriet eventually made it to Ontario, where there was a significant abolitionist and escaped slave population. It was in Ontario in around 1858 that she met John Brown, a white abolitionist who had planned a slave insurrection that he hoped would spread and once and for all end slavery. Abolitionists across the North heard of Brown's plan. They knew of his willingness to do violence to end slavery. He criticized pacifist abolitionists and had a long record of shedding blood in the name of abolition. He was also willing to die for it. Brown had recruited abolitionist and escaped slave Frederick Douglass, and it seems that this is how Tubman and Douglass met in person for the first time, despite the fact that they were both born enslaved in neighboring Maryland towns. Douglass was apprehensive about Brown's plan, not because of Brown's call for violence, Douglass himself used violent rhetoric, but because he believed it was a plot doomed to fail. John Brown recruited Harriet to help with his plan. Like Brown, she believed that action was necessary and violence was likely. Like Brown, she was critical of abolitionist behavior that was too slow, all talk and no action. She had intimate knowledge of the countryside and the confederation of abolitionists and safe houses that could help. She shared information and contacts, supply lines and escape routes with John Brown and she helped Brown raise funds for his attack. While Tubman believed in direct action, she had now also begun a career as a speaker for the abolitionist cause. In the summer of 1859, as Brown was planning his assault, Tubman was in Massachusetts, speaking before the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society and the New England Colored Citizens Convention. She visited with Thomas Wentworth Higginson in Worcester, Massachusetts, one of John Brown's Secret Six supporters. At each speech, a collection plate was passed and the funds were sent to John Brown to pay for his campaign. The audience was captivated. Historian Catherine Clinton quotes the secretary of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society. The mere words could do no justice to the speaker and therefore we do not undertake to give them but we advise all our readers to take their earliest opportunity to see and hear her. Moving from venue to venue, Tubman spoke under a pseudonym to avoid the bounty hunters who were still looking for her, to send her back to slavery. 
Many other abolitionists did not support John Brown's tactics. Some thought it was too extreme. Others thought it was a suicide mission. Frederick Douglass had reservations as Brown's attack on Harper's Ferry was headed right into a steel trap. Yet Tubman signed on to help. Given how thoughtful and courageous she was, I don't see this as recklessness on her part. Perhaps it's because we know she was willing to die. She was willing to break laws and take enormous risks to free herself and others. She seemed to understand that waiting for change, expecting the politicians to show courage, was simply not going to work. She knew that silence was complicity and that not yet usually means never. Brown's raid was doomed to fail. He had little understanding of military tactics, little knowledge of the land, and probably overestimated the impact that he would have in recruiting enslaved people to take up arms. After just two days, Brown was wounded and captured. Tubman wasn't present at the raid. Historians speculate that she was off on a recruitment mission, or perhaps raising funds. Others claim she was ill. Some think she secretly had second thoughts, though this doesn't square with what we know about Tubman. Brown was put on trial for treason and hanged. Tubman was devastated by the loss of her friend, someone she saw as a martyr and a brother in arms. Tubman said this about John Brown. He has done more in dying than a hundred men would do in living. In the words of historian Catherine Clinton, Tubman never wavered in her support for John Brown after his death. Clinton also refers to the religious sentiments of Tubman. The religious symbolism of Brown's death had a powerful effect on Harriet Tubman. Not only the power of his example moved her, but his death in some way reinforced her own prophetic powers, as she had witnessed his demise in a dream when she saw a crowd of men striking him down. Tubman took Brown's death as a sign that the time was drawing near for liberation. Harriet had gone from liberating friends and family to attacking the system of slavery in multiple ways. She was invited to speak to abolitionists in Boston. On her way, she stopped to visit family in Troy, New York. It is here that she would become involved in her first public rescue of a fugitive slave. Harriet was no longer operating in secret. Now she would work in broad daylight. Charles Nall was an enslaved man who had escaped at auction in 1858 and fled to New York, where he remained in hopes of reuniting with his wife and children. In retribution, enslavers sold Nall's brother down the river to the Deep South. Nall was eventually found by a slave catcher. Another of his brothers, a free black man who was paid as a slave catcher by his father, the enslaver. Nall was held in a Troy courthouse. A large group of abolitionists gathered outside the building. Remember, New York was home to a lot of anti-slavery activity. Tubman disguised herself as an elderly woman wrapped in a shawl. As authorities escorted a shackled Nall down near the river dock, Tubman grabbed him and dragged him towards the abolitionist mob. She was beaten repeatedly by police as she dragged Nall to a waiting boat full of abolitionist supporters that ferried across the river. 
authorities were waiting on the other side. Naw was recaptured. But Tubman and the mob of supporters freed him again. They stormed the judge's office where Naw was being held, wrestled him free, and stuffed him into a wagon out of town. Later, they raised $600 to pay for him, purchasing his freedom. The effects of this public fight were widespread. Some called this an unruly mob. If this happened today, I suspect many would criticize the mob for rioting and looting, breaking the law, undermining civil authority. Would law and order have saved Nal? No. He was being prosecuted under the law. The law would not save him. In the end, Tubman and the mob used the law ironically and operated within the unjust system. They paid $600 to legally purchase him. Tubman had been speaking publicly to abolitionist groups for a few years and had no doubt inspired the cause with her words. But it was action that made her Harriet Tubman. She lived a life for other people and for justice. She acted with immediacy, without theory, without hemming and hawing. She acted immediately because her consciousness was raised and her ethic was inscribed on her heart. She was sure of herself. Let's go back to theologian and mystic Howard Thurman. When she fully asserted her personality, then she was ready to live for others in a just community. To Thurman, community was the end to which we are all oriented. He doesn't mean community in the traditional sense that we usually use it, when we describe life in a small town or something like that. What Thurman means by community is a recognition that our lives are intertwined and that health and welfare and the ultimate destiny of each person is intimately wrapped up with that of other people. In short, each person's individual human flourishing is not an individualistic affair but is tied to the flourishing of each other person. Love for others creates community. Dr. John Cartwright explains Thurman's point. With knowledge of the self and of God, we can understand God's nature, which is love, the unity behind all of existence. But this unity is in peril because of the ways we are divided, and the primary way we create division is by denying the personhood of the other. I would add that we often do this when we selfishly assert our own individual needs over and above that of others, when we focus too much on the self. Love is the caring for the individual and the community, giving them worth, purpose, power, and a sense of infinite relationship. And in so many ways through history, we have not done this. Slavery is the most clear example. Racism, sexism, nativism, homophobia, ableism, all sorts of othering behavior, both individual and structural, have stood in the way of true community through history. Thurman would say that if community is to be established, love must be the prevailing way but not sentimental, saccharine love, and not theoretical love, and not the kind of love that only values people that we care about or people who are blameless and pure. It must be a love that is dangerous and radical and unexpected 
a love that allows the individual, the community, and even nature to reach their full potential. Thus, we need to seek to eliminate the ways that divide us or go against love. We need to do this for the health of the other, but also for the health of the community. This doesn't mean ending division by looking for compromise. There is a right and wrong. Remember the great James Baldwin quote, We can disagree and still love each other, unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of humanity and right to exist. Remember, Harriet started with the self, and that is just where Howard Thurman says we must start. Community grows from a sense of unity with all life, and this can only happen when each individual has a sense of self, when one realizes their full personality. There's a societal function to this. Society and culture can affirm or deny your personhood, your personality. We mustn't let low self-worth or a sick culture or malignant others to determine our worth. So while it is true that your inherent self-worth is a fact, your self-image is largely defined by society. Thus, asserting the self-worth of each individual and eliminating the structures and the systems that stand in the way of people doing that has two important roles. First, it liberates individuals to become their full selves. And then, in creating liberated people, it creates a new society where everyone lives in community. Community is realized in real time and space. It must be worked out in life. And if laws stand in the way of community, if they stand in the way of a person becoming their full self, those laws must be broken. If social practices or traditions stand in the way, they must be transformed. Morality does not consist of reciting a list of rules. Somewhere along the line, we made ethics into just sitting in judgment of others for their breaking of the rules. What it should really be is looking at the systems, the structures, and the individuals that stand in the way of justice and human flourishing and throwing ourselves on the gears of the machine by truly loving others and community. Harriet Tubman is not only liberating by setting people free from literal chains. She is fully liberating by fighting against the barriers that prevent community. In this sense, she is doing as much to create a nation of justice as any of our founding fathers. The Virtue Field is brought to you by the Revolution Ethics Project. It's written and hosted by me, Eric Bowman, and produced and scored by Echo Finch.